online. We want to welcome you, and we look forward to meeting you sometime soon. I want to start this morning as we start in a new sermon series called uh, Words to Live By. I want to tell you a couple of stories uh, that you may or may not connect with. A couple of them you're probably going to look at me and go, yeah, I totally see that in him. But uh, I, I do want to tell you a story about a little boy, though. He was a great kid. He, he was, he was uh, probably, you know, middle, middle school maybe, smart kid, got along with everybody pretty well, a little bit on the nerdy side, didn't quite totally fit in. He wasn't one of those cool kids, you know, that you would probably recognize. And he was picked on a little bit, but he was never really included, and, uh, but not necessarily excluded. He just, just was kind of there. He fell into the background a, a lot. And he really wanted to do something to try to fit in. And so one day uh, before class started, he got one of those glue sticks and uh, he went up to the chalkboard. Now, some of you may not know what a chalkboard is. It used to actually use chalk to write with instead of markers. And, and so you'd have to erase them, all that stuff. And so he went up to the chalkboard, and he, he began to do something on the board. And nobody really knew what it was because you couldn't really see it on the chalkboard for the glue. And so um, the, uh, then he took a, some chalk, and he marked around a little bit so the teacher would have to erase. And, and what happened is the teacher came in, and she began to teach. And as she's teaching up here, she begins to erase the chalkboard. And the dust from the, from the eraser got onto where the glue stick was, and it revealed this very obscene image that this young man drew with this glue stick. And, of course, all the students laughed. They just thought it was the greatest thing in the entire world. And, and the teacher, she was mortified, to say the very least, because it almost looked as if she had done that, right? And so uh, the, the boy back there, he's kind of caught in the middle of two worlds. Like, he knows he's not done the right thing, but now he's the cool kid, right? And everybody really, really likes him. And it, it actually reveals a lot of, about our life, of some of the things we do to try to fit in and be accepted and be, be a part of something. But when the dust settles, things get revealed, don't they? It's kind of like when I was a senior in high school, uh, we had something called Senior Skip Day. And there was only like 69 people in my graduating class. And so we decided to skip one uh, day of the year and go and do whatever. And, of course, it was going to be an unexcused absence uh, anyway. But uh, we had this little radio station. I grew up in a little small town, had a little radio station. And they had what was called the Trading Post. And the Trading Post, you would call in and say, well, I've got, you know, this to trade or I've got hay for sale or I've got this or this or this or this. And I decided it would be a good idea to try to do what I could to block the phone at the school. And so I called in and told them, you know, that I had a whole bunch of cats that uh, were, were born in my barn. And I needed to get rid of these cats pretty soon before I had to take them down to the creek. And so if you wanted one of these cats, all you had to do was call me and I gave them the school's phone number. And back then, this was 1994, we didn't have all this technology, so it made it very challenging for them to call out because after the ASPCA and a couple other people had called um, into the school because, you know, the little bitty town, they're like, I can't believe this person's talking about getting rid of these cats this way. It made it very challenging for them to actually call our parents um, to tell them, hey, your child has skipped school. Now, I, my mom knew I had skipped school that day. I told her I was skipping school. That does not make her a bad parent, by the way, just in case she's watching. Um, but she knew that was going to happen. And, of course, I got an unexcused absence, too. But it said a lot about my own integrity, right? And, you know, sometimes when you do something to fit in or do something funny or cool, you exchange your integrity for what? I mean, we've all kind of been there a little bit, too. And, and, uh, and maybe some of you adults, you might kind of see this, too, is because sometimes the, the little kid or the, the high school kid, they grow up into, to be um, coworkers. And has anybody ever worked with a lying coworker before? And maybe their lives really don't impact you that much on the surface, but they, they do things or even manufacture events so that they can look better than what they really are. 
So you've, you've got a coworker that says, oh, we had a problem with a customer and, and this didn't get done right, or, or, but I took care of it. And it makes them look really, really good in front of their boss, right? Or, or we had this problem with a parent. You know, if you're a teacher here, I know we've got a lot of teachers. We had a problem with a parent, but I took care of it. It makes you look really, really good. turns out it really wasn't a problem at all. The only, the only real problem is you with integrity. But before long, that lying coworker gets promoted, and now they're your boss, and you have to deal with their lack of integrity. Does anybody identify with this at all? Because if not, you're probably the lying coworker. I just want you to feel comfortable with that, right? This person who is now your boss, and they're manufacturing things, and it's making you look bad. And you've got to deal with that. You've got to work with that each and every day, and you're going to get cornered at some point by his boss or by somebody else who's trying to do the right thing, And you're right pressured right in the middle trying to fit in and be a part of and be accepted and to excel yourself. And you look and you watch someone who's doing it the wrong way and they're getting promoted and you're doing it the right way and you're staying flat at best and you're not really moving. Things aren't going the way you want them to go. And so it's a little bit of a challenge. But what you notice about this lying coworker is that it's not just his conduct that's a problem, it's his character. And a lot of times we look at people, we hear things, we see things, and we judge everything based on their conduct. And it does reveal some of their character, but we don't take the time to get to know their character, who they are. And that's a huge challenge for a lot of us. And this is just a human condition problem. This is not just something that happened in the Old Testament or in the early New Testament or even today or even 2019. We have a lot of challenges when it comes to telling the difference between conduct and character. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I want you to know there's one back there at the next step table. Grab one on the way out. We're going to give one to you. Take it. We want to make sure that you have access to the Word of God. We're also going to put it up on the screen today, and we're going to look at one single verse in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters that are divided up on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were to read that whole thing, you would find just an amazing sermon. But it's a little confusing, and people have lots of different angles by which they've gone after the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, my whole goal is just to give you an overview of the Sermon on the Mount in one verse and help you understand what's going on here. Jesus had just got through preaching to a whole bunch of people, and he calls his disciples together, and he's giving them all these what we call the Beatitudes, and we're going to go through those over the next couple of weeks and talk about what those. And he's talking to to his disciples, his listeners, his followers, the people who are trying to figure this out, but they're dealing with Jesus who has this new answer, this new truth, this information, and then the Pharisees and the scribes who have this legalistic ideal, these rules you have to follow, these things that have to be done a certain way, and they judge you based on your conduct. And so when Jesus says simply in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Truly I say unto you, or verily, verily, as your, your, some of your translations may say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are better than the ruling class, the religious authority, the really smart guys, the theologians, the, the, the brother buddy better than you's over here, unless you're better than them in all aspects of your life, you will not get into heaven. And it sounds like a really hard teaching. It sounds like Jesus is saying, there's no chance for you. I mean, look how much better those guys are than you are. And if you're not better than them in every aspect of your life, you're on your own. Too bad, buddy. And that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is a couple of different things. First and foremost, he acknowledges that the truth must be taught and told and that he's there to tell the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to me. You're going to have to accept me, Jesus, as an authoritative 
uh, pronouncer of truth or you're going to have to accept another truth. And whichever way you go, there's consequences for those truths that you accept. But we can't both be right on opposing things. And so Jesus acknowledges that he is telling the truth, and he's trying to draw them in to say, listen to me, I'm here to explain the truth to you. The second thing that he says to them, unless your righteousness, now there's a problem with righteousness, and righteousness is actually far more simple than what we try to make it sometimes. Righteousness and unrighteousness just basically says, my creator and I are not in right standing with one another. We're not in a good place together. There is something that doesn't keep our relationship quite right. Sometimes in, in spousal relationships and in, in, in paternal relationships and friend relationships, we have a relationship, but things are a little strained and they're not quite right. And so it would, be, it would be grammatically correct to say that it is an unrighteous relationship in that we're not right. So how do we make this right? Well, if you've ever had a fight with a spouse, you know that the best thing to do is, is just to go and say, I don't really care what happened. Everything's my fault. Please forgive me. Right? Husbands, that works for you, Right? I'm not hearing any amens this morning. Maybe I've got some altitude problems with my ear. I don't know. Or, or wives, maybe the best thing for you to do is just look at your husband and say, this is all your fault, and if you just take you know, responsibility for it, this would all go away quickly. Wives? Okay, there we go. We've got some honest ones over here, too, and a couple of husbands back there saying, you know, pointing behind them, right? Okay. It's an unrighteousness in that we're just not right. So how do you make things right? Well, honesty is always a good place to start with making things right. And Jesus is saying, I'm honest with you today. I'm telling you the truth. But you know that you're not right with your creator because something in your spirit that God has actually placed in you is not right. And and you're following these rules that these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these religious leaders and all these people, you're following these rules and it's still not working for you. There's still no satisfaction in that. James Dobson says something amazing that says rules without relationship equals rebellion. And sometimes we try to force rules on people and we have no relationship with them and they rebel. Christian community, those of you who are Christ followers who identify that way, we're really good at that on everybody outside of the church. We try to place some rules on top of them without having any relationship and seeing no context of where they're coming from, knowing what's going on in their life. And we wonder, why do they keep doing this? Why do they keep sinning this way? And Jesus is addressing this and saying, look, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, which, by the way, is the wrong standard. He's acknowledged to them as well. You've set the standard and said the Pharisees know exactly what's going on. And and if you could be as good as them or better, you should be able to get into heaven. And Jesus is saying, no. Not only can you not exceed their righteousness, their righteousness is still not enough. The only thing that's enough is me. I'm it. And so while you're trying to meet up to this standard of somebody else, you're still going to miss the boat. And finally, Jesus acknowledges to them that you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven because every single human being, as as we're told in Ecclesiastics and in Proverbs, that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. Every single human being is looking for what is at the end of their life. It's one of those questions that we all ask. Why am I here? Where did I come from? What happens to me after I die? And Jesus is saying there is such a heaven. He'll do lots of teaching about that, saying that I go and I prepare that place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. He's going to add on another one just for you as well to bring them in. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that got their attention. Wait a minute. So what hope is there for me? If I can't be as good as these guys over here and they're the societal standard, they're successful, they're wealthy, they're powerful, they're influential. If I can't be as good as them and I can't go to heaven, what what do I do? 
how do I do that? What's the question? I don't even know that I'm asking the right ones. And so Jesus is simply saying this, and if you're writing anything today at all and you're paying attention to verse 20, which we're going to come back to in a couple of weeks, I want you to know this one simple thing and just let this burn in your brain and let it bother you all week long. Because what Jesus is talking to them about is that these guys have this code of conduct, this set of rules, these ways for living externally. And what Jesus is saying is that I want to transform you internally. And that while you can clean up on the outside or you can make a mess on the outside, it's what's on the inside that matters. And you can't change that by changing your conduct alone because your character is going to come out. And so the simple thing I want you to know more than anything else this week is don't confuse character for conduct. Don't confuse the two of those things. Because this is exactly what the people were doing during that time. It's exactly what we do today. Well, John, that's, that's an interesting statement. I'm not sure that I totally agree with you yet. Because in my mind, I'm, I'm playing out, well, well what, about, what about Christians who, who cuss and drink and smoke and watch dirty movies and, and laugh about you know, uh, off-color jokes and, and, and tell lies and cheat on their taxes? Does that mean that they're not really Christian? That's a fair question, don't you think? I mean, especially because tax season's coming around, right? You're looking for deductions wherever you can get them. I mean, we've got five children. You only see two of them, but we've got five of them. We're going to claim a couple of Russell's kids or something. I don't know, right? Is, is that right? Because if they're really Christians, they wouldn't do those things. That's even better, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a great question because a real Christian wouldn't behave that way. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do those types of things. How many of you, when you drove out today, when you got onto to I-10, you exceeded 65 miles per hour? If you came from, from the west, you probably didn't because of the construction. You never had a chance. But if you came from the east, you did, right? How about this? When you, when you get onto an exit ramp and it says 45, <laughs> yeah, right, eventually. You know, 10 feet before I get to the stop sign. A real Christian wouldn't do that because their character is transformed by God, and so that just magically makes them all perfect. And the the Pharisees would probably say, hey, yeah, well, if they clean all that up on the outside, they would look like real Christians. And Jesus is saying, I can look into the heart of a real Christian, and they're going to be messy on the outside, and they're still going to make some mistakes, and they're still going to succumb to the sins of this world and to the pleasures of this flesh, and they're still going to make mistakes. But at the very end of the day, it's what's going on on the inside that really, really matters. And so can a Christian do all these types of things? The answer is yes, they can do these types of things, but should they? No, they probably shouldn't. Well, how do they know the difference? Well, that's the beauty of what Jesus does for us. He says, I'm going to send for you a helper, the Holy Spirit. He's going to, he's going to work inside of you. He's going to speak to your heart. He's going to speak to your mind. He's going to help you to transform that character a little bit at a time. Because at the end of the day, we're all trying to become more like Christ, and we do that by having our character changed, not by changing our own conduct. Many of us do that on our own, and many of us try to ascribe that to other people and try to force that upon them, but it gets really, really challenging. Well, Pastor, what about good deeds and charity and kindness and generosity? Isn't that the mark of a real Christian? Isn't that the mark of what a real Christ follower does? Shouldn't they do good things and, and be charitable and, and, and be generous to, to people? Yeah, but what, what's any difference between them and, and the Salvation Army or the, the person next door who finds out that their, co- their, their neighbor lost their job a year ago and they didn't have a good Christmas? You don't have to be Christian to do those nice things. And so that doesn't really do much for you, but it's good conduct, isn't it? 
it's a good way to be neighborly, and, and neighborly by and large is not isolated just to Christianity, but it takes a whole different level because of its, 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 its motivation and what's behind that. Wasn't God going to take into account the good things that I do? So if I'm standing before him on judgment day and I look at him and I say, I've given 10% to charity and I've given this amount and I, I skipped dessert on this, this day and gave it to somebody else. I paid for a nice couple to have a meal. I bought Christmas gifts for, for kids, uh, for toys for tots. I never knew any of those kids. I never saw anything about them. I don't know their situation, but I bought some gifts. Aren't those things going to really matter when I'm standing before God on judgment day? And I'm telling you right now, no, they're not. They're, they're not going to matter in that. That is not the means to the end. Those are characteristics of a transformed life. But listen, good people can still do those things, but they're still going to a real godless eternity called hell. It does exist, and people are going to go there. And so you can look at it a lot of different ways. Jesus very subtly said you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but that means there's a place other than the kingdom of heaven. And that's the domain of hell. Well, look, so if you're saying all these good things and all these nice things don't really matter, why even do them at all? Hey, I'm with you, totally. Christmas is totally a commercial thing. I think we should cancel it. Birthdays, too. I want to stop having those. Some of you are probably with me on that. I've got one coming up in a couple of weeks. It's not a big one yet, but it feels big, especially on the joints. All this good stuff we're talking about is nothing more than conduct, and conduct should be shaped by our character, and we ought to be able to have our conduct to spread out who we are. People should be able to see the character of God in us because of the way that we, we live, act, speak, work, talk, places we go. Well, John, you're almost talking about a monastic lifestyle. Maybe we should all just, you know, join a convent or, you know, a monastery and just do that. No, that's silly. Jesus never says that. In fact, he said, I didn't come to, 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 to just give you life. I came to give you life more abundant. I want you to know true joy, and that true joy is found in relationships with other people and telling them about how you know for certain you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and it's not because of the Pharisees' rules and all their regulations. Well, how am I supposed to do this? How do I know the difference between conduct and character? Let me just I'm going to ask you this one simple question. When you do anything, whether it be good, neutral, or bad, when you do anything at all, is this a response or is it a request? Now just think about those two words for just a second. Someone's in need, and I have the ability to help them in that need. Am I doing this as a request to get God's attention so that he will see me do something nice for somebody, and he'll take mercy upon me, and he'll be pleased with me, and he'll praise me and tell me what a good and faithful servant I am? Those are actually pretty noble things. Or... Am I doing this out of response? I have an obedient response to what Christ has done in my life, how he has changed me, transformed me from the inside out, and I see someone in need. I realize that I've been given the ability to help someone in need. That ability probably came from God himself because he wants to use me, and I'm responding to what God has done in my life to help someone else, and the motivation and the outcome is completely different even though it's the exact same act. Do you see the difference? So when I do something or don't do something, am I responding to what God has asked me to do obediently or am I requesting that he would see favor in me? And for the Pharisees, they were very clear about you should be requesting stuff because you're getting God's attention. And we've all, we've all seen the kid, right, with his hand up. I have an And he's back there in the back and he's got an answer to the question. When you finally call him, he has no idea what the answer is. He just wanted the attention. So many times, so much energy is invested in trying to get God's attention, right? 
trying to get God to, to, to answer our request when really we ought to be responding to what God is doing. And all along, he's sitting beside us. He's whispering to us. He's talking with us. We're having a really, really good conversation with him. And so when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he's looking at the entire Sermon on the Mount. And he's just saying, I could give you a list of rules. You'd probably never be able to follow them. In fact, I gave Adam and Eve one in the garden. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they didn't get it. And then I gave them ten commandments. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And guess what? Didn't get that either. And then I put them out in the desert and I let them roam around for 40 years. In the process of that, I gave them the law and 612 different laws and said, have at it, boys. If you master all of these, you can walk right into the kingdom. In fact, I'll give you keys to the kingdom. You can come and go as you please. You guys can't even follow the speed limit. What makes you think you can follow 612 laws? That's just one of them, right? Truly I say unto you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, good luck with that. You will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, you see that those are really good words to live by. There's nothing negative or life-sucking about that. It's actually very affirming to say, cease striving and know that I am God. Stop trying to figure this out on your own. Stop trying to make this up as you go. Stop trying to get my attention for the good deeds of conduct that you're displaying and let me change your character from the inside out. And you'll see that those things will flow right on out of you because out of the mouth the heart speaks. Jesus is going to do some great teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and people are going to interpret that a lot of different ways for thousands and thousands of years. We ourselves are going to do that, but I just want you to understand you can change your conduct. But God can change your character. Don't confuse conduct for character. It gets really, really hard to just do good things, say nice things, act certain ways. But on the inside, you're still not right with God. You're still not in a righteous position with your creator. And the only way that he's going to allow you into the kingdom is if he makes you right. He, after all, is the one who sets the rules. And rules without relationship equal rebellion. And he says, I want relationship. I'm going to give you a relationship. And his name's going to be Jesus. And he's going to go and die on a cross for you. He's going to come back to life to show you that he can conquer absolutely everything. And he's going to be a man of upright, standing character, one you can model and look after. And I know it's going to be hard, and you're probably going to fail along the way, but I love you despite that. That's the character of God coming out. And when we act and respond to him that way towards others, then others see God's character in ways that they're never going to see it just through our conduct, just through the nice, good things that we do. I want to encourage you this week to really wrestle with that idea, not to confuse conduct for character. And when you do or don't do something, are you responding or are you, you requesting? Respond to God the right way. You're going to get it wrong on your own. You need help for that. He says, don't worry about that. You're only human. I get it. I'm here to make sure that you have life and life more abundantly. Jesus said, I tell you, unless the righteousness, your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if there were ever any really good words to live by, those are them. Don't confuse conduct with character. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we bless you. We praise you, Lord, because you are the one who makes things right. 
And God, we mess things up all the time. We get them wrong in ways that are new and imaginative. uh, And Father, that are beyond just comprehension some days. But yet you look at us, not with pity, Lord, but with love and with grace and with mercy. And you see that it's easy for us to try to clean up the outside. I think it's really, really hard for us to let you change the inside. But God, we know that when the dust settles, lots of things are revealed. Father, we know that when we exchange our integrity, the cost is rarely worth it. And so, Father, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we look at what Jesus has done for us, we look at how he's worked in our lives, Father, we pray that we become more and more like him, that you would change our very character. And that we wouldn't just try to play Christian or try to play good person or try to play church by saying and doing and acting the right way on the outside. But instead, our conduct would be a response to the character that's been changed on the inside. And so, God, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for Jesus who has come to set us free and to change us. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. This morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and we do this once a month, the first Sunday 